Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 82 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, July 17th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Are, are we still here? We're still here. So, so the, the press conference, we, we didn't we didn't cede our, all, all of our sovereignty to, to the Russian government? Oh, no, we're, we're still here, comrade. Da. Ah, yeah, yeah da, 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 tovarish. Tovarish. <laughs> That's friend? That Not, means friend? Uh, something like that. Nastarovia. We'll start drinking early today. Can, uh, is that like a toast? Yes. Phrase? All right, let's yes. do it. I've got my uh, well coffee right here. My, you know, it's not only not only are all eight of my great grandparents Russian, but my brother-in-law is Russian. Uh, my sister married a Russian when she was spending time in Russia before she basically got kicked out. Well, you so. must have taken a special interest in events in Helsinki. Helsinki, Sweden. Helsinki, Sweden. So All right, so so just to explain this because I think this is <laughs> going to be the episode title. Last week was the 30th anniversary of Die Hard, which I will I will hold up to any other action movie as the sine qua non of action movies. I love Die Hard. Right. I'm totally with you so far. Who doesn't love Die Hard? Um, and there's this hilarious scene where you have this expert, this talking head on television, talking about Helsinki syndrome. Um, which I assume was supposed to be a funny reference to Stockholm Syndrome. And the anchor, trying to show off how smart he is, jumps in and says, Helsinki, Sweden. (laughs) And the guy's like, Finland. And everyone in the control room is, you know, face-palming. So I didn't remember this scene at all. And when you proposed Helsinki, uh, Sweden as the title, I was like, wait, did did Trump say that? Listen, you know, that would have been the least of his sins if he had said that yesterday. So I think we are going to have to talk about Helsinki. Yeah, Yeah, we'll do that. And then that will lead to some other uh, Trumplandia topics. The the, uh, two fascinating indictments, one from Special Counsel Mueller on Friday of 12, Bobby, Russian government uh, uh, hackers and and folks for hacking the DNC and other things. It's basically a GRU. Uh, intelligence service, uh, military intelligence yep. indictment, and then a uh, in some ways more interesting indictment yesterday. Right, and so bookending yes. the Helsinki yes. uh, event. Shall but we call but it? I, one of the things I want to talk about, and we'll get there when we get there, is I don't. I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that yesterday's indictment of Maria Butina didn't come from Mueller, just came from right. the National, National Security S- Division. Right, which goes to show you that not everything is is Mueller all the time. NSC is still open for business. Apparently. John Demers and his shop continues, as as we note on the show quite often. <laughs> Security division keeps on keeping on. Um, then you and I are going to fight about whether people should be resigning in protest over yesterday's summit. I I, I take it from your exchange with our good friend Paul Rosenzweig on Twitter. <laughs> your general answer is no. My general answer is yes. Well, my my I don't so I don't go in for general answers. Uh-huh. Coats, coats should not. I right. that whole thing. We'll talk about this whole business. Right, so, should so, coats resign? Should other people resign? So I want to just plant this now so that you're not surprised when we get there. The person I really want to talk about, the two people I really want to talk about are Pompeo, three people, Pompeo, John Huntsman, and John Bolton. Those are the three people I really want to talk about. All right. So we'll get to that business. And then uh, we'll, we have a Supreme Court nomination. We have the bre- oh, okay, no. oh, wait. This seems like from two months ago. Is it really since our last episode? We had not. We recorded uh, the day last Monday, the day of the announcement before it was confirmed. Oh, I want to say. Hey, we've mainly talked about Brett Kavanaugh. We mainly talked about Brett. We talked a little bit about this. Um, did you? Do you know how everyone figured out it was Kavanaugh? Um, well, there's been a couple of different things, right? So I knew some stuff that involved... Well, you knew stuff, but that's because you're friends with him. But like, do you know how the world figured no, out it was I, Kavanaugh? I didn't know anything because I was friends with him. <laughs> I just, there, you know, when you look on the camera and you see uh, relatives you recognize, right? Right, right. right. And, uh, he but was before seen that, getting in the... No, no, the, but, but before all of that, at 4.30 on Monday afternoon, the D.C. Circuit just oh, randomly yeah, yeah, right. issued this FOIA opinion, yeah. which is not... An emer- the D.C. Circuit usually only issues it's opinions on an Tuesdays and Fridays. Opinion. It was an off-schedule opinion. It wasn't an emergency. Like, Doe versus Mattis has mm-hmm. come out at odd times, right? right. It was an off-schedule, non-emergency opinion that was per curiam 
over a dissent with Kavanaugh on the panel, which of course meant that had he had to step off the panel, they would have been evenly divided, they would have had to re-argue the case. It raises the question, did the moment of his nomination, is he instantly off? That's his choice. There's no, right, yeah. there's no requirement that when you are nominated to the Supreme Court, you have to, that, but the whole idea yeah. is, it's just discretion is the better part of valor at that point, because why part, why keep participating in cases that you would then have to recuse from? Although it did kind of give the game away, as you said. Well, that's, I mean, so so starting around 4.30 Eastern time on Monday, there are all these people on Twitter who are like, it's going to be Kavanaugh, because there's no other explanation for this random yeah. move by the D.C. Circuit. And I guess the upshot of it all is like, so so the news gets out a little bit early. No, no, Nothing I know. Really it's just, it's just it. funny how, I mean, it's just funny how this is, okay. Anyway. I will, no, I, I, I'm totally with you. It, it was a lot of fun separating Indeed. the politics and the policy out of it. I think everyone agrees that was an ex, sort of an exciting day for court watchers. Totally. Okay, we're going to talk a bit about Judge Kavanaugh's national security record. I actually had an op-ed in the Washington Post on Thursday where in 750 words I tried to get through six of his opinions. Um, <laughs> I don't think it went very well, but Case that's Case editing is taking over your mind. Exactly. Um Speaking of that, we'll get to that. Um, we have some updates from our sustaining members. So yeah. a, a, a pretty good Dovey Mattis yeah. update. Uh, there's a decision that is looming on the government's request for permission. Or well, let's let me rephrase that. The government plans to release him more or less back where they found him in Syria, and ACLU is attempting to stop it. We'll have a decision in a few days. We have some reflections on, on the, the oral argument. Yeah. Um, and we also, Bobby, have a new fascinating argument. We we have a twelfth layer. To the 10-layer dip in al-Nashiri. Just when you take one layer out, they put in two more. It's a, it's a hydra. It's a hydra. Oh, gosh. Oh, Lord. The, we are mixing metaphors. Just Why not? All right. Anyway, there's a new interesting issue that has arisen by dint of the Supreme Court's decision in the Lucia case with regard to officers of the United States. Um, Nashiri is now moving to dismiss the entire prosecution because he has a, Bobby, non-frivolous argument that the convening authority, the person who sets up the whole trial and refer, prefers the charges and all these other things, um, has to be an officer of the United States and isn't. Ooh, okay, uh, that is some good possibility Admin, nerdy. for further delays in the military. Just what we process. need, right? Totally. Um, all right, uh, we have also a couple of litigation updates from outside of our sustaining members. Um, to, to neither of our surprise, the D.C. Circuit unceremoniously dismissed the appeal in Smith versus Trump. This mm -hmm. was the service member challenging his um, deployment to Syria on the ground that the uh, AUMF doesn't cover ISIS. We'll talk briefly about how unsurprised we are by that. Um, we have the hearing last Wednesday in the much ballyhooed uh, CCR uh Multiple detainee habeas case. Thank you for not saying mass. You know it bugs me. <laughs> um, and I, but, but coming out of that, I, I do want to talk about sort of one idea that's starting to make the rounds, which is, you know, insofar as you're not going to close Guantanamo, are there steps Congress can and should be taking at least for those folks who have been cleared by the periodic review boards? Something I think we might talk about for a couple yeah, minutes. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, uh, and then we have some frivolity. I want to talk a little bit about the 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 bane of my existence the last three weeks, which was our annual casebook supplement, which is at the printer. Praise this, praise the Lord. Is the supplement any uh, any smaller than the book itself? It is, but when you keep in mind that we just did new editions of the book two years ago, the fact that the supplement is 250 pages gives you a sense of just how much is happening in, in the field of national security law. Um, and you want to talk about this super fascinating event next week in D.C. Yeah, actually, this week, this uh, week. This, on, on Thursday, I'll be in D.C. and I'll talk you about are just what a traveling the occasion man. is. I am a traveling man lately, too wow. much of it. Um, one thing we won't talk about, which we've teased the, the Mets. Yeah, we certainly will not talk about the Mets. They had an awesome first half, man. Hey, uh, they, this break comes at a pretty good time. 
it does. The, the past, <laughs> the past uh, couple of episodes, I have promised or threatened to talk about the cyber-related provisions in the National Defense Authorization Act, and then we've run out of time on both. Uh, we've run both out of time. Episodes. I have Imagine a hard. That. How? How? I don't. How is that possible? I know. Um, you know, we have to keep our standards here. Mm. Anyways, uh, we realized that with the uh, the two bills for the National Defense Authorization Act in the conference committee process, which rumor has it has actually already completed, um, we should wait and see what actually emerges yeah, and I, in the I conference. suspect that we will see conference text either this week or next week on the NDAA, and I, and I, I imagine there will be a lot of stuff for us to talk about. Exactly. Just really quickly on the Mets before we go to Helsinki. What's um, the, they what's go, the, mid, they, the go into, they go into the All-Star break tied with the Marlins, who are trying to lose. Tank. Trust the, the process. Trust the process. I just, I mean. Maybe the Mets need a process. Do you think it... Let me ask you this, Steve. Should they go ahead and start uh, moving their pitching assets and, and plan for a rebuild? The Mets have such a terrible, sordid history of trading away like their young stars and getting bubkis in return. I mean, I just, I don't know, like, I don't want to trade DeGrom and Syndergaard and people like that for short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's... Hey, I think Bobby Bonilla is available. Bobby, July 1st, Bobby Bonilla got paid again by the Mets. <laughs> Wait, you, we talked about this before. A year ago. How many, is it, so this is some salary cap type trick where you spread like the, the salary ni- over In the 90s, years. it was like this inspired idea that they were going to do deferred compensation for Bobby Bonilla to the point that like for 10 of the last 15 years, the highest paid outfielder on the Mets payroll has been Bobby Bonilla. Okay, so he, so the Mets are running their budget like the federal government, basically. Which, you know, works out great. That does. All um, right. All on right. to business. On to business. So, um, the press conference. The press conference. I mean, this is. I think this is going to go down as the press conference. Oh, y- y- I'm sure he'll find a way to top it. But it, it was. Uh, I think we we are not divided on this. I thought it was a day of national humiliation for the United States to see an American president, uh, never mind on foreign so- soil, uh, basically uh, kowtowing and and uh, you know what, what's the phrase sucking up. To uh, to Putin, um, talking about how strong he is and how how important he is. But worse than that, I mean, it's it's bad enough. So so the empowerment of Putin, right, on a national on an international stage, the legitimization of Putin, I think, is problematic enough, right? No mention of Crimea, no mention sure. of Syria, no, no mention, no. Of, right? No. The worst part is, you know, it, the prepared statement I thought was, you know, for Trump, fine. Yeah. It was the Q and A. It was when I right, know it's when he gets to sp- speak his own mind, and he gets questions about, you know, your intelligence community, your Justice Department has concluded that the Russian government tried to influence the 2016 election, and Trump says, "Well, I believe Putin," yeah. and and he has some good ideas about he, what to do with strong. that. Right. He's strong. He's strong. Look, uh, I think we all understand this is. We don't need to rehearse this too much. We understand what's going on in Trump's mind, whether it's. Do we understand what's going on? Um, I think we understand that what's going on here is that Trump sees only his own interest and his his understanding and engagement with the topic of the Mueller investigation and everything that falls under the heading of Russia all reduces to a singularity. And the singularity for him is the, the threat to his legitimacy. And so for him, it all reverts back to collusion. No collusion, right? So that's all he wants to talk about. But the irony is in the process, in in the process, he actually makes it look like, I mean, well, as as several, you know, wags said, like, oh, you're colluding right now. (laughs) Um, Look, it's, we can go on and on about the outrageousness of denying the plain facts that the indictment from the day before uh, indicting the GR, from Friday, the GRU officers in incredible detail reflecting immense forensic and intelligence 
factual foundations for all of it. I mean, no sane person can question that some version of GRU, government, Russian government-led yeah. intervention, the election occurred. Now, does that mean that the Trump campaign knowingly colluded? No, no. that's a separate matter, that's but right. not in his mind. Well, that's or, right. or at least or whether whether he's incapable of seeing that difference or does not want to see it, it almost doesn't matter. He reduces it to, it's. I didn't knowingly collude, therefore all this is witch hunt, this is all bunk. And it's hard to know in his fevered mind what, what it is. But in the process, I mean, I think, I feel very strongly that he is dramatic dramatically harming the national security of the United States. Obviously. Right? No, look, I, I think when you, when you were the president of the United States and all you care about is this, this possible implication for the legitimacy of your election or your political standing or whether you really crushed Hillary or not, um, and you're sacrificing and dropping off the agenda in a major negotiation like this uh, or a major meeting between powers right. like this, right. all the, the things that are actually part of the U.S. national interest, um, clearly you have subordinated the national interest to your very petty personal perspective. So I want to I want to get to the indictments, but before we do, I mean, so so Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, issued a statement that you were quite um, uh, praise praiseful 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 of praising praise it praise it to the rafters. Look, uh, he had already been out front on this issue. The, the DNI has been. I've said on this program before, a very, very quiet figure, but a very strong and a sort of a, what's the phrase we often use, a, a adult in the room adult type the figure. Room. Although it's very hard to see because it's very non-public, which I think is how he's been able to stay in a position uh, such of of being like Mattis, but not um, not as visible because of the nature of the position. The DNI just isn't a public figure in right. the same way. So he had already uh, made a few statements running up to the press conference talking about Russian interference both in the 2016 election and the ongoing threat. And there was talk about the system blinking red for upcoming interference. So he's already been real strong. Within hours of the disgraceful statement by the president uh, denying Russian interference in the 2016 election, he put out a rare DNI press statement Pretty short. Basically, you have it right there, right? Uh, basically saying the, the Russian... role of the intelligence yeah. community is to provide the best information and fact-based assessments possible for the president and policymakers. We have been clear in our assessments of Russian meddling in the 2016 election and their ongoing pervasive efforts to undermine our democracy. And we will continue to provide unvarnished and objective intelligence in support of our national security. I think it's pretty remarkable that within hours of the president conducting this globally observed press conference where he denies these facts, the DNI decides to issue a statement shortly on the heels of that saying, no, Russia interfered with the 2016 election and they're an ongoing threat to do it again. Good. That, that's incredible. I dissent. All right, dissent. I know, I know where you're going with this. Lay it on me. So, the, the, you, know who's, you know who doesn't show up in that statement at all? But you want him to say the president's name? I want him to say the president's Because you're wrong. worried people might not understand what this, he's talking about? This is so soft. This is such a soft statement from the DNI. L- listen, I understand. We've had this discussion before about at what's the red line. Like, at what point do you have to resign, right? Do you think he should have said, the president's a flaming idiot. I resign. I think someone that, should that would, I think we all would greatly enjoy that. But what good would that do versus him staying there? Because here's the problem. If no one, if there's no canary in the coal mine in the executive branch, why should we be con- criticizing Congress for sitting idly by and for doing the same thing? This is pablum. This is an empty statement no, from a government no, official, that's, that's just so like wrong. Speaker Ryan and Leader McConnell and all these, Jeff Flake, right? You, oh, you don't think tisk, it matters. I, I, don't, I don't believe that you don't. 
don't think it matters. It, it, surely you think it matters that the DNI publicly contradicted the president within hours of the press conference. It matters, but what did it accomplish? You wish he said it more, more emotionally, with Bob, more passion. Bob, what did it accomplish? So is it going to undo what the president said? Is it going to affect, is it going to improve, is it going to um, uh, take, claw back some of the concessions that were made? And who knows what the president said in the closed If he'd said it with more passion, what would that have done? It's not about passion. Well, if he'd resigned, we should disaggregate our issues, yes. right? So we let's, let's map out where we might disagree. We might disagree on whether he should, we do disagree on whether he should resign, I believe. Yes. Um, should we talk about whether he should have issued this statement, setting the resignation aside, but issued a stronger so statement, which this, is where you were going a moment so, ago? So let's take, these in, let's take these in order. On the statement, right, there's this whole sort of charade that all of these Republicans, both within the administration and without, are, are undergoing, where they're issuing these strongly worded statements. We've got to focus on Coates here, and then we'll talk about okay. Ryan and but, others in Congress. But what I'm saying is this is of a piece. This is a this is the, the kind of statement you're seeing where someone says something that, like, 10 years from now, because they look, he was the watcher on the wall, but they don't actually call out the president. They don't actually say, I disagree with President Trump's answer to the question at the press conference today. Could he have said it stronger and avoided any concern that maybe he meant someone else? I, it's obvious he's talking about Trump and he's contradicting To him. you and to me. No, 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 no. It's, you really think there's some risk of confusion on this? I think that I think that a president who is not who a president who gets up there and says things like what the president said yesterday and is not swiftly condemned directly and called out by the people who know better, like the director of national intelligence, is being enabled by those people. He issued a rare public statement I don't care. directly contradicting. I know you don't care, but the <laughs> fact remains that he and what issued did it a, he issued a public statement directly contradicting the president Good. on exactly the issue that matters. Good. Now tell me what uh, it accomplished. What more do you want it to accomplish? I, so what kind of what what would the right statement have accomplished? I think the right statement would have given cover for congressional Republicans. Oh no, that's a total fantasy. You think there's something that Dan Coats could have written in that press release that would have caused Congress to act differently than, yes. than did? I think really? that's exactly one thing he could have I written think that's in the press release. Complete so, so here's the thing I want. To, so this is the pivot from point one to point two. You know, he could have written in the press release that would have gotten Congress's attention. I, comma together with the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, comma, can no longer abide the foreign policy pursued by this administration when it comes at the expense of the hardworking men and women of our intelligence community, State Department, and law enforcement agencies. I therefore see no choice but to resign in protest. All right, so that would have gotten Congress's so removing, attention. So we're moving from how he should have contradict the president to he should just resign. He can, he can contradict him, but he should resign. Yes. You're claiming that if he'd resigned, it would move the needle in Congress. Yep. I question that. Okay. What's the evidence to think that that would make a difference? Well, nothing else is. That doesn't make it, that that doesn't prove your case. <laughs> I understand. So I, listen. Th I think it's, it, it's a spectrum of things, right? So if if a sufficient number of people sufficiently loudly all threw up their hands, but by that point, surely we could be talking about the thing we should be talking about, which is why don't they just impeach the guy and well, but, remove but the But here's the question. So, so you are, imagine you are Republican senator typical, okay? And you're not up for election this year. So this is just a pure question of what's the right thing to do, all right? And you are confronted with mass resignations by the leaders of the National Security and Foreign Policy Establishment of the administration who are very publicly saying this president is dangerous. Yeah, but look how far down the spectrum we've gone from talking about a statement contradicting him to mass resignations by all the key officials. If we had the type of momentum, look, let's so circle, let's line? make sure that listeners understand. I, I'm in favor of impeaching Trump, I right? Understand. I'm not, I'm not defending hey, Trump. I I I'm just trying to 
get our listeners all on the same page because I know they don't all follow us all on Twitter, although you should. You really should. Uh, so, so I think that he needs to be removed from office because he's unfit for the office and yeah. he's proved it a million times. Helsinki was hardly the, the first time he's proved it. Um, but in order to do that, what do you actually need? You have to have a pretty massive amount of political support for it in Congress in particular. And so far, there's been you know, not only little reason to think that articles of impeachment are going to emerge from the House, but quite the contrary. The House seems, you know, pretty compared to the Senate, pretty comfortably supportive of the president and not particularly perturbed by things. The idea that if Coates, and again, I'm talking about Coates here, if Coates had said, you know, in even in like really uncharacteristically passionate and angry language, this is a freaking travesty. I can't be party to this. This is a disaster. Somebody do something. Save us. People impeach him. And he resigns. It wouldn't have moved the needle at all. So this I, House, I just, House members would have just said, ah, deep state. I disagree. With, I just I disagree with you because if it's so. So if it was just Coates, maybe. Right. But Coates was a congressman. He was one of them. Right. I mean, like I just I have senator. I, was that? Wasn't he a senator? Was he a congressman and then a senator? I don't know. He was, uh, it, he, he was a, a member, member of Congress. Congress. Um, right? Like, if they know, they know Coates, right? They the know, House doesn't care. But so this is the I understand that there are plenty of people in the House who don't care. You don't need that many Republicans to care to get the votes for impeachment. And so the question I just have is if nothing, what, if you are a member of the House this morning and you wake up and you see all of this tisking in the media and tisking in the press, and tisking by folks who you care about and who's, you know, tisking on Fox News, right? You're not going to do anything. If you wake up this morning and you see, oh my gosh, right, John Bolton has resigned. Dan Coats, my former colleague, has resigned. Mike Pompeo, my former colleague, has resigned. And they've said they are resigning because this president is a danger to the foreign policy and national security of the United States, you still think they'd sit on their hands. Again, we've changed the hypothetical. Now we're not talking about Coates resign. You're talking about not only Coates, but Pompeo, John Bolton. You're, you're adding enough names to the list where at a certain point, of course it makes a difference. Right. If, if every last person all resigned. I'm not talking about every last person. I'm talking about the people whose job is to advance the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States. The U, I mean, the U.S. ambassador to Russia. How can John Huntsman's daughter had a stronger reaction Right to what happened yesterday than John Huntsman did, and I guess all I'm trying to say she's is- not an ambassador. But the point the point I'm trying to make is that if you add enough people to the list of people resigning, of course it makes a difference. It's a spectrum. So it's someone's a- got to go first. You think that Coates going would actually leverage Mike Pompeo to, to leave the State no, Department? No, but I'm just saying, like, if all, no one resigns... So, so, our our let, conversation... Let, okay, go let, ahead. Let me just... Last thing I want to say. Just, I, I understand where you are. I think I understand where I am. But let me flip this over. No one resigning sends a terrible message to Congress, which Disagree, is that there's no there's, canary in the coal there's mine. There's a huge... <laughs> It, the canary in the coal mine, like what is it? So the canary in the coal mine uh, I know, I metaphor. Just metaphor. Is that, no, no, you the, you the, need someone there to, to, to be breathing. You need someone there to be breathing who, who then dies. You think, oh, there's something going wrong. There's no secret here. The thing about all of this Trump madness is there's nothing secret. There's no warning shot needed. All the facts were need, were available to the members who need to take but action. Nothing but nothing bad won't. enough has happened. But, but, and, yet, and yet we keep on keeping on. Exactly. But I'm questioning your claim that people saying, all right, I've decided based on my position that I'm pulling the trigger. 
I'm questioning that that's going to make any difference for these members. I don't think they respond to that. So but what here's, will? Here's the most – the changing – look, I think you and I both know that what they're responding to primarily is what the likely voters that they think they're answerable to are going to do. And as long as the approval ratings are where they're at, and those approval ratings aren't going to change if Dan Coates resigns. Now, there's a huge missing part of the uh, the puzzle here. Coates resigning isn't costless. Pompeo resigning isn't costless. I don't Bolton resigning, you know, I'm not going to worry about that one. I'd be <laughs> fine with John Bolton resigning. Um, Dan Coates being at DNI is good for the national interest, and it's good for the intelligence community. And I have zero confidence that whoever becomes the next Trump-appointed nominee to run the director of national intelligence office, uh, ODNI, uh, would be as nearly as willing to do things like publicly contradicting the president and providing this really important immediate pushback from a credible figure in the form of that statement, which may not have been delivered with passion, but it was delivered with factual accuracy. And that's the boldness that counted. So if, if Coates is out of there, Lord knows what comes next. If Pompeo were out of the State Department, that's not good for state either. Who knows what might come next? There are people in positions that it's cost it's it's potentially very harmful down the road in terms of actually empowering Trump further if they don't stay in their so positions. Listen, I, I, I'm like not, Matt, Mattis being the classic example. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not costless. I mean, of, of course, it, of course, costs would result. I just I'm just trying to figure out at what point is there what is the red line. I mean, the president got up on an international stage next to Vladimir Putin, the president who said, that when asked to identify who is the United States' biggest foe right now, said the European Union, right? I mean, yeah, I know. What it's is, crazy. So what's, I know. so what's the red line? What are you waiting for? It's not who's what's the red line. It's who's the audience that needs to change their views about supporting Trump for, for things to then change in the form of oh, the elections coming up, the 2020 election, uh, the possibility of impeachment, and that's the population that's supporting him. And they're not going to be responsive to Dan Coates saying, I'm out of here. Do you think Dan Coates— it, Co- it, it won't even register much in the news cycle. Do you think Dan Coates wants President Trump to be reelected in 2020? I have no idea. Yeah. All right. Well, so I think the I think the the I still want to talk. Okay, we have to talk about the indictments really quickly. I just want to say I do think this is related to our next topic, which is Brett Kavanaugh, because I think a large part of, like a large part of why there is contentment, um, or at least um, toleration of some of this Michigas is because Republicans are getting their judges. But all right, indictments. Um, we well, we, indictments. we've talked. We've already talked about the GRU. We haven't really talked about uh, well, you Maria talk, Bettina right. indictment. Right. Um, so not not Mueller. Not a Mueller investigation. Just a regular old National Security Division. Uh, Eighteen USC nine fifty one, which is uh, sorry. Uh, if you're if you're a foreign agent in the United States, you have to register with the department with the Department of Justice. Early on in this program, we used to talk all the time about that with Mike Flynn, yep. you know, the Foreign Agent Registrations Act. Um, so nine fifty one separate from FARA. Nine fifty one is like I mean, I mean it was enacted at the same time, but it's a standalone defense. FARA is about if you are conducting activities on behalf of. A foreign power. This is if you are actually a foreign agent in the Actually United a foreign agent. So the claim is that she is an agent of Russian intelligence, I assume. I don't know if they specified, right? Because the, the person she's linked to, uh, Toshin, I think is his name, is an oligarch who's a key figure in Putin's party. Um, she has been depicted in the indictment as having tried very uh, systematically over a period of years to try to influ- uh, increase Russian influence in pro-Russian uh 
uh, policies within the Republican Party, trying to leverage opportunities with a like, quote gun rights organization, unquote. right? So, so going to NRA events and using that venue and using uh, a contact with an unnamed American who's supposed to, you know, there's been some speculation. Two, un- two unnamed Americans. Is it two? So there's been some speculation about who they are. Uh, political operatives and active in conservative yeah. causes. U.S. Um, person one and U.S. person two. So here, here's an interesting question, I guess. Uh, obviously, all things Russia, radioactive. Um, Steve, is, is it not common for foreign governments, and, and this doesn't make it legal to do it without registering, but is it not common for foreign governments to hound to hound these events, yeah. looking for ways to inject pro-fill-in-the-blank country no, policies com- into it, both political parties? My understanding is it is common. Yeah. Um, right? I, th- I, th- I guess the question is, what makes this case different? Yeah, and so the, the failure to register. Well, yeah, so failure to register, I think also maybe some sense that, like, um, these are ac- even though it wasn't Mueller, these are actually of a piece, right? This is part of this broader Russian interference conspiracy. So I, th- I think the danger will be um, is if it turns out you start seeing a lot of effort to spot all the different ways in which the Russian government through various agents has tried to advance its policies in Washington, um, starting to, is the phrase, denormalize things that are pretty normal for Russian, and, and not just Russian, but other foreign governments trying to influence Washington. Will we potentially see um, an overreaching that then gets exploited by the Trump camp to say, look, this is all just sort of run-of-the-mill stuff. Uh, the Israelis do this. Others do it. All sorts of countries do it. And they're kind of coming after us. And it causes us to lose our focus on the thing that really mattered, which was the GRU's operation to yeah. actually impact the election, not just lobby, right? Yeah. There's a difference between the lobbying efforts maybe illegally uh, conducted because of the failure to register versus the actual, you know, the doxing of the of the DNC. I, I agree. I'll just, I would just say, though, I mean, listen, remember, the purpose of the Foreign Agents Registration Act is that if there are political interests in the United States that are, in fact, acting at the behest of and at the sort of lobbying of foreign powers, the voters have a right to know that. Right, that that part sure. of this is about electoral accountability. All right, but I don't think I drew my distinction precisely enough. Then I completely agreed. Obviously, we have these rules and they need to be enforced. Is there some danger that Giuliani is going to go on TV and start saying, "See, look, this is all about of course. just trying to," you know, he'll try to take advantage of the emergence of illegal lobbying yeah, yeah. and try to muddy the waters and draw attention away from the actual attempt to alter Listen, the election. Giuliani went on TV on Friday and said the indictments vindicate, the Friday's indictments vindicate Trump. I mean, how, how did he, what was his logic? Because it just shows, right, it shows that this is not, it shows that this is just about Russian interference and not about collusion. Well, you know, if, if Trump could himself draw that distinction in Helsinki, that might have been helpful. Right. I mean, I think we, we agree that there's there's two layers. to this. Imagine how right. I mean, imagine if the president actually came out and, and was quite forceful about how, even though I vehemently deny that my campaign had anything yeah. to do with it, I completely accept exactly the findings of my own intelligence community. I am very, you know, yeah. troubled by what it appears the Russian government has done, and I will immediately pursue these 22 steps to prevent it from happening again. Imagine how the, I mean. Oh, no, people will be like, oh, my God, what happened? Right. Wow, thank you. Trump 2020. Yeah, exactly. No, if he, that's, several people have observed he's not even good at advancing his own self-interest because that path is is available to him, and he seems unable to draw the distinction that we just articulated and apparently Giuliani articulated. All right. All right, enough about that. Let's move on. But Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. What about Kavanaugh? Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I do think that the silence of, like, so when, you know, Jeff Flake 
right, has the power to totally screw up the Kavanaugh nomination if he wanted to. If you want, but why Why would he want to? Well, because he says he's pissed off at Trump, right? So if you actually want to get leverage over Trump, right, if you if you want to actually hit Trump where it hurts, take away his judges or hold the judges hostage to, I need you to admit, right, that the Russians tried to interfere in the election. <laughs> you think that would work? No, but I think that... So what would be the point? If Here's... The point would be to actually do something as opposed to whining on Twitter about President Trump. But but I think by that account, you're talking about scoring a a louder rhetorical point that wouldn't actually change things. No. And it per- would ch- you, you don't wait. You don't think. OK, hold on a second. I'm not saying they're going to do it, but you don't think that if three or four Republican senators got together and said, we will not vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh until the president takes these steps. You don't think that would move the needle? You, are you saying you think Trump would back down and suddenly have a different posture on the Russia investigation if a handful of senators basically uh, blockaded the Kavanaugh nomination? I, think, I don't believe that for a second. No, but I think I think I think we would learn an awful lot about what his priorities are. I think. Well, I don't think we'd learn anything we don't already know. We already know that there's you and no, I know it. There's no higher priority than himself. What that would do is cause a huge amount of political pressure to be trained on those senators and probably get them replaced over time. One's retired. More Trump. Flake is leaving. Right. He's already announced. He's and there leaving. will and there will be an election to fill his seat. And doing something like that would increase the chances that the next person would be more pro-Trump. I'm not sure that's true. I'm, I'm just not sure that's true. I, mean, I think it's a safer bet than the idea that the. Uh, the point of the exercise would be realized, which is to say causing Trump to change his policies. All, listen, all I want to say is, well, well th- then these people should shut up, right? I mean, because when Jeff Flake goes, when Jeff Flake and other members of Congress go on Twitter and say, I can't believe the president did this. Uh, there are like five reports this morning, Bobby, of Republican officials telling reporters in, Cong- in Washington, we just don't know what we can do. Right. Well, clearly, so let's talk about what they can do okay. and what realistically can be done. They can use their hearing powers. Hearings! Wait, right. it, you mean instead of Strzok and Lisa Page have a meaningful hearing about President Trump's contacts with Russia? Crazy talk, I know. Right, so have a hearing. In- Subpoenas! Look, the Senate Select Committee wait, wait, wait. Intelligence Congress has shown have, that it's Congress, possible to do these does things. Does Congress have a subpoena power? I've forgotten. Hmm. Let me go brush up. Do you have any uh, Vladic articles around here I can read about that? <laughs> so clearly they Harsh. can use – Harsh, Bobby. They can use the uh, oversight powers that, that are used when the parties are divided and that will be used if the Democrats take either house in the upcoming elections. They can do those sorts of things. By the way, sorry, kind of for one second. Oh, do you have it? The president Breaking just news? tweeted. Oh, wait, hold on. Well, I had a great meeting with NATO, raising vast amounts of money. I had an even better meeting with Vladimir Putin of Russia. Raising vast amounts of money. Sadly, it is not being reported that way. The fake news is going crazy. Fake news. Oh, goodness. All right, so hearings, subpoenas, um... Oversight. You right? know, what, but let's be specific. Like, hearings about what? Subpoenas about what? All right. So let me be as specific as possible. Hearings into the very same things that Mueller's investigating, whether and to what extent the Trump campaign and or the Trump administration has had and is continuing to have contacts with Russian officials, members of the Russian government, etc. Use of the subpoena power to do the same thing. Getting witnesses under oath, under penalty of perjury. Um, to now, talk- ha- now, hasn't the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence report, which completely confirmed yeah. all the intelligence the committee assessment. findings and all that, as we've talked about, they've done this to and, a degree. It, to a degree, they did, they did to a degree, and as we talked about, it didn't. You know, it was a it was a moment in the news cycle and quickly washed away by events. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So the interesting question is, what could be done differently if yeah. you're the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, if you're Senate Judiciary? More, more, more public stuff, right? And just kind of just generally trying to turn the heat up. And get, sh- get, I mean, listen, John Dean, right? And what's his name? Butterfield, right? Testifying on live television during the Watergate hearings was what helped to sort of move the needle. Yeah. So I think, I think this sort of thing, this goes back to my theme earlier, that yeah. what matters is whether or not you're sending a, a counter narrative to likely Republican primary voters. That's what matters. Yeah. And are you reaching to them? Now, a lot of that's going to depend on the, the key mediating institutions for that audience, especially Fox News. Are they beginning to at least some aspects of that operation? Are they beginning to carry a different narrative? Um, obviously, Hannity and, and Carlson won't. But but the news programs and some of the some of the other the daytime hosts, will they begin to inflect things differently? Some of them were pretty critical about Helsinki. They're not always purely pro-Trump. Um but it remains to be seen. I'm a little skeptical it would matter much. All right. So, um, But, but my, my core point is sorry. I certainly don't think it's incumbent upon those who want Trump to be derailed, right. to be exposed, to be put under pressure, uh, to therefore oppose the Kavanaugh nomination or to take any other particular you – know, to try to, to link to some other but, otherwise distinct but issue. Would you at least not a, all things Trump is supporting would you at least are a, the Trump problem Would you at least things. agree that there are sources of leverage that are – so there are reasons to not use your levers. But do you yeah. at least agree with me that those levers are there? there all these things, anything that, by definition, anything that disrupts something Trump wants to do is a lever. or wants to see done is a lever. Okay. Um, how about, so how about legislation, right? Pass the Mueller Protection Bill. Sign me up. Right? No, but I'm saying, like, yeah. These that, are, that, no, dear that, Congress, these are things you can do. And, and, it, and I would argue to you that would make so much more sense because there's a nexus between That's the right. issues. That's right. Now, we, we both understand that in negotiations, sometimes the whole point is, like, you take your leverage where you can get it and you link unconnected issues like Kavanaugh and and your response, your concerns about foreign policy, you can do that, but it's more effective and will go over well if your ultimate audience is is the public and what they think is going on if you connect these things. What if, listen, what if what if three senators, what if three Republicans came out today and said, I will not vote for Brett Kavanaugh until I get to vote on the floor of the Senate for the Mueller protection bill? Until I get to vote. Yeah, I mean, maybe that worked, but I tell you, I think the delinking, the the lack of connection between those issues would cause a lot of people to. But then you're, o- losing, but then you're losing your leverage. I mean, what's the point of leverage mm-hmm. if you're not going to? I mean, anyway, okay. Yeah. Um, you could for, uh, stop funding things, right? I mean, like, well, um, that now that makes more sense, right? You could hold up executive branch nominations. I mean, there are lots of like, Congress has all. Uh, what? How did we get to a point where Congress is like, oh, the president's run off the rails? Woe is us. It look at as I said before. Yeah. Look at the numbers. the 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 relevant slice of the voting public that they're looking at, more or less. Do you in think, fact, I think was, systematically in some places is really supportive of what's going on? And they're think, not. They're not. Their reaction to Helsinki isn't the reaction you so, and I so had. So I am not. I don't. I don't know that I agree that the majority of the voting public is sympathetic. I didn't say them. the voting public. I said the primary. The the slice that they're watching. Okay, but doesn't there come a point, Bobby, where some where things are more important than winning elections? It's that should be the case all the time. That's why you and I are not politicians. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, there's more Congress could do. I tweeted about this yesterday. I just this whole like. Poor us. We have no power. Yeah. It's so sad. I'm like, you know what? You got things you can do. Shut up. They do have things they can do. All right. Um, Kavanaugh and, and National. So we talked briefly last week before it was clear that it was 
Brett Kavanaugh's nominee, um, that of all the nominees, he has the most interesting record when it comes to the subject of this podcast, right? Now, just yeah. by dint DC of circuit. having been on the D.C. Circuit for the last 12 years, um, you and I have both written in different forms about his fairly central role in Guantanamo cases, in other national security cases in the D.C. Circuit. You know, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about it. I, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post on Thursday um, that basically suggested, you know, whether you think it's a feature or a bug, um, his jurisprudence certainly looks far more deferential to executive power than Justice Kennedy's, um, far more um, unwilling to sort of look to international law and take international law seriously in these cases than Justice Kennedy, um, and far more circumspect about the role of the courts in these disputes than Justice Kennedy. Um, and I get the sense that you're not necessarily in agreement with me on all those things. The main thing I objected to about your op, the only, the only thing I, so Besides a lot of your op-ed the style op-ed was, and, the, and the wording and the. No, 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 it's fine. The, the, obviously, a lot of the op-ed was saying, look, look here, here's the positions he took in some of the, the Gitmo-related juris, uh, jurisprudence. And of course, that's all accurate and, and so forth. Um, if I read you right, you were saying that uh, on a number of issues, you think that he would act? I think you claim very directly uh, th- he'll be different substantively than Kennedy would have been on certain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and was think, and, and well, I don't think we know what Kennedy. In fact, if we had to guess, what would Kennedy have done on some of the things that Brett ruled on? The fact that the court didn't take up the cases, though Kennedy presumably could have joined with the four liberal justices to form a five-vote controlling block if he was really bothered by one of those decisions. If anything suggests to me that, you know, we at best we don't know that Kennedy disagreed on those matters. So I disagree for a couple of reasons. Okay, first take Al Bahani, right? The 2010 case about whether we should look to international law when construing detention authority. First, we know Kennedy actually thinks the answer yeah. is yes. I I very much agree with you that uh, Kennedy is far more comfortable referencing international law than Brett Kavanaugh. Okay. No question. All right, so let's put international law to the side because yeah. I think that may be where we, we disagree agree the least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the role of the courts, right? On on the Nashiri point that I made in the op-ed, where Kavanaugh said we have no power to review the military commissions um, until after a, a, a post-conviction appeal, um, he was overruled by the rest of his court, right? I mean, right. you know, Karen Henderson wrote the majority opinion in Al-Nashiri 1 saying, yes, we have mandamus jurisdiction. So SCOTUS never had the opportunity to... There was no occasion for right. Kennedy to take a view on that. Not only that, but like, I mean, not even the rest of the, cons- not, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that Karen Henderson is a Kennedy clone, right? And even she thought, so um, I just, you know, on, anyway, I, I don't want to get all yeah. the way in the I think that at least on some issues, right, and maybe you and I just disagree on how many, um, I'm pretty convinced that a Justice Kavanaugh, and, and to be clear, these are all cases where Kennedy was the fifth vote, right? These are all cases where Kennedy's successor is going to hold the the power, right? That Justice Kavanaugh is going to be far less sympathetic to detainees. He's going to be far less sympathetic to international law, having anything to say about these cases. I guess, so on Gitmo stuff, I think you're probably right that if we, if we rewound the clock and had a, a different, you know, we're in the multiverse. Go down some other path where it's Kavanaugh in there instead of Kennedy. Um, Bumedian doesn't probably come out the same way. Right? Um, but and then there is no Guantanamo jurisprudence. Right, right. But here's here's the question for us now in this actual timeline. Yeah. Um, those, those decisions are there. Um, a, there's it's extremely unlikely. I think all but certain there's not going to be some case that presents some sort of. Do you want to reverse Bumedian? No, so right. so those precedents are kind of locked in. And I don't know, what's the next case that we're worried that, that 
there's going to be some Gitmo case that does somehow get back to the Supreme Court, whereas uh, the Kennedy court, if yeah. we can use that phrase, yeah, yeah. Um, hasn't wanted to touch Gitmo I, since so, Boumediene. So I have three candidates for you, okay? The first is Doe versus Mattis, not a Gitmo case, but a military detention case, right? Where it's not clear to me that Kavanaugh and Kennedy would be in the same place on any of the questions presented, right? And I mean, I think you and I think there's a non-frivolous chance that somehow, some way, Doe versus Mattis ends up in the Supreme Court. It's hard. I, I really think he's going to end up being released before it gets to that. Um, okay. But, well, well that's, that's, that's our next segment. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, you know, since he's a citizen, I think all the bets are off. Like, where is yeah. Gorsuch on the rights of a citizen? You know, you know, Scalia was very no strong in favor of citizen okay. rights. So it's not clear that Kavanaugh would be a decider, sure even right. if he wasn't of the Scalia persuasion. How about wh- how about when the military commission cases start getting in the Supreme Court? Now, yes, they denied certain Al-Balul, but that was a fractured opinion where there was no majority rationale. And they denied certain Nashiri solely on the abstention question. What about when the merits issues start actually getting to the Supreme Court in proper You know, Kavanaugh is young, but I'm not sure he's young enough to still be <laughs> on the court. <laughs> I got you nothing know, I, for that. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Okay. And, and then just third, right? Third. <laughs> um, we talked about this before. I actually think the area where Boumediene is vulnerable is not Guantanamo cases. I think it's um, undocumented immigrants, right? I think it's Castro and these other cases that are out there. And it's just not I, – I feel very strongly that Justice Kennedy would have not flinched at applying Boumediene to undocumented immigrants. I have no faith that, that uh, Justice Kavanaugh would feel the same way. You know, on the immigration stuff, I just don't know enough yeah. to express well, he has, an opinion He doesn't about... have enough of a record. I mean, the D.C. Circuit yeah. has no immigration docket. Which is kind of funny. It's, I mean, it has yeah. no it has no immigration docket. It's a very small criminal docket. It's yeah. just the, yeah. that's what it gets for being in the D.C. Circuit. But if you want to know about it, administrative law, they're your folks. Except immigration. That's my yeah. point. I mean, yeah, no, no, no. That's why I said it's kind of funny. But because like, the there are, and, 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 there. and immigration law is in some ways a sort of weird side, you know, yeah. variant of administrative law. Well, it's it's the most geographically dispersed, I guess you would say. Although you can make an argument that the environment uh, should map out yeah. the same way, but it doesn't really. It's not really how EPA. I listen. The year I clerked, the up. year I clerked on the Ninth Circuit. I mean, the Ninth Circuit, biggest circuit court in the country, like tens of thousands yeah. of cases. Forty-four percent of the docket was immigration cases. No, well, hey, when I was on the Second Circuit, we had a ton of that yep. stuff. All right, anyway, so I, I suspect we will have more to say over time about Kavanaugh. No right. doubt, no doubt. So, um, we have some quick sustaining member updates. Speaking of Doe versus Mattis, Friday there was a hearing, the, the much yes. ballyhooed, much anticipated hearing on Bobby, not the merits. Not the merits. All right, so, uh, you know, we are coming up. We'll have to do something to celebrate. I wonder if our 100th episode will coincide with about the one-year anniversary of talking about Doe v. Mattis. No, because our 100th episode is going to be like October, November, and Doe versus yeah, Mattis one year September. All right, so. My birthday. John Doe, U.S. citizen. In dual U.S. Saudi citizen, still in U.S. military custody, somewhere in Iraq, probably somewhere. the Kurdish region, probably in Erbil. Um, the latest move, as you'll recall, is the government really wants to wash their hands of this deal. They want to release him more or less back where they, where he was initially picked up by SDF forces in Syria, um, and so they they gave notice to the ACLU, who represents John Doe, and to the court that they plan to give him about 4000 bucks and a cell phone and send him back where they found him. But not a passport. But, but he didn't have a passport to begin with, and they're not, they weren't planning to give him one, so he doesn't have any identity documents. ACLU says, hey, this is a death warrant. You can't drop him off in the middle of a war zone. And with with, with 4000 bucks. <laughs> having announced, well, that's a, kind of a damned if you do, damned no, if you I, don't. I, I, oh, okay, we'll solve that problem by giving him no money. Perfect. <laughs> Here's a sandwich. Thanks for playing. No, um, the case should be dealt with on the merits at some point, but right now we're still in this collateral transfer and release uh, litigation, and Judge Chutkin heard oral argument on Friday. Uh, the awesome Katie Bo Williams had coverage. Thank you, Katie Bo, for being there. 
Um, she said the following on Twitter about what went on that she observed. First of all, Judge Chutkin made clear she was going to rule within seven days. Uh, presumably, uh, by the end of this week, we'll get a ruling. And that Judge Chutkin expressed awareness that, of course, that'll go up to the D.C. Circuit pretty quickly. <laughs> so, yes, we'll be in for another round of this game. But wait, look, look at a lower court recognizing it's not going to have the last word. And hey, speedily trying to resolve it. Hey, Court of Military Commission Review. <laughs> Take, Take note. notes. Take note. Okay, so that said, what's going on here? Um, it's hard to read between uh, the lines of Is the it? tweets uh, exactly what the issues precisely were. But it looks like uh, the ACLU, as I'd expect, and hope they might, did make a Valentine-type argument, though not quite the one that I would have them make. Steve, as you'll recall, my argument was, let's back up. Valentine is the idea that (laughs) if you're going to transfer a U.S. citizen from from our custody to the custody of a foreign power. positive legal authority. Yeah, treaty statute says you can do that. Everyone agrees that's the rule. There was fighting over whether that applied in the context of where they were trying to release him. The court, uh, the D.C. Circuit said it does. Here, the government says, okay, well, never mind. We're just going to release him outright. No Valentine problem. I had expected ACLU to argue, and, and it encouraged them to argue, that by analogy to Valentine, there's still a due process concern simply by doing an involuntary cross-border transfer. Um, it's not clear to me they're making that argument. Instead, it, it appears from what uh, Katie Bo Williams tweeted, it appears that they're arguing that there's a de facto transfer taking place here. And I'm not sure that it matters much whether you frame it that way versus the way I was proposing framing it. Um, In any event, DOJ says it's no transfer. It's just a release. There's no constitutional constraint, no analysis. I I think that argument is kind of weird because I'm sure even DOJ doesn't claim they could push him out of a speeding car, as I argued the other day. (laughs) They would acknowledge that there is an inherent amount of safety of release element wired into things here. So the real question is and needs to boil down to is there sufficient grounds to believe that this release is safe? Um, there's a lot of lack of clarity regarding how much certainty, who's the burden on, presumably on the government, but how much of a showing do they have to make? Judge Chutkin apparently expressed a lot of discomfort with trying to personally make the decision as to which places in Syria might be safe and for how long and under what circumstances. And that's why I think that uh, you're talking about a predictive question of Factual judgment. This is an area I've written about where the executive branch normally has the National maximum. National Security Fact Deference, Virginia Law Review, 2009. Read it and weep. Um, or it is weep. Or just weep. Uh, you'll, you'll weep if you read it just because it's so long and boring. But in that piece, I kind of unpack that was all. nine years ago. That was a long time ago. It was when I first came here yeah. to UT. Hook them. Uh, <laughs> the point of the piece is to show that look, there are a lot of different elements that go into justifying claims of judicial deference to the executive branch, and they don't all map out the same in every circumstance. One of the variables is what kind of claim, what kind of a determination is at issue. Predictions about uncertain elements of future factual development, especially in a foreign policy or military setting overseas, that's where deference is going to be at its strongest relative to other scenarios. Uh, I think in the end, this is going to be a deference ruling that's going to favor the government. And I'll predict for you that uh, I think Judge Chutkin is going to say so. The only interesting question is, will she cabin that ruling to certain uh, or or uh, connect that ruling to a requirement that certain additional steps be made, such as providing him at least with some kind of identity document. Now, this gets into the question of, can she order them to uh, issue a passport 
And apparently, Judge Shutkin uh, has said, or the government has said, at some point it was made clear, that's not going to happen, or at least the government doesn't plan to do that. I think it's pretty interesting, and I, I wish we could summon forth Jeff Kahn of SMU, who's an expert on all things related to the right to travel and travel abroad and the constitutional aspects of this. Steve, you may know this area well. You know most areas well. <laughs> My very rough sense, based on prior conversations with Jeff, is it, it's quite clear, uh, whether it's good law or bad law, in policy terms, it's pretty clear that if you're in the United States, the government doesn't have to give you a passport to let you travel to every place you want to go in the world. It can keep you from going to this place or that place. Um, but conversely, if you're overseas, it's not at all clear that they can effectively de facto, yeah, de facto exile you yeah. simply by refusing to issue you travel documents. That's the, right. That's, that's the exact distinction is that you don't have a right to travel to some other country. You may very well have a right to come home. Yeah, that seems clearly correct to me, in fact, and it would be a sort of astonishing if it wasn't like, ooh, too bad you took that uh, French vacation to go celebrate the World Cup. Right, you could, it, would be, it would be a way of constructively expatriating Right, someone. right, we've revoked your passport unless you can sneak back in the country. Good luck. So it seems to me that at some point, Judge Shutkin or the D.C. Circuit might say, look, you can release the guy, but you've got to give him identity documents if you request it. Yep, so I think that's exactly right, and I think then the question just becomes, I, I mean, listen, my gut reaction from reading the reporting and, and listening to how sort of Friday went I think she's going to rule for the government with conditions. Yeah. And, and of course, I think Doe will appeal to the D.C. Circuit. Um, I suspect the D.C. Circuit will, it will stay Judge Chutkin's ruling if she doesn't do it herself, um, yeah. pending appeal because the equity is so clearly tilt yeah. mm -hmm. in Doe's favor as opposed to the government's here. Um, just, right, that, that release is irreparable, right? right? Whereas right. Exactly. Whereas the another quo couple clearly weeks. can go on forever, um, apparently. So, so we're not done. And, right. and I think the one thing, you know, I... I I've been very critical of Judge Chutkin, and I will continue to criticize Judge Chutkin for not issuing a merits decision while all this is going on, at least in this context, understanding that she should move quickly and, and that she's not going to have the last word, I think, is the correct Absolutely. So I think, she's, I think she's heading towards the right outcome here. Now, so let's project a little further. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court's not going to take cert on this, so that'll be it. He'll well, who it. knows? I mean, so, so I, I don't think. It depends on the it, So first, we got, it depends on what panel you get in the D.C. Circuit, right? Because there's a rather radical difference between, say, a, you know, Know, Pillard, Srinivasan, Tatel panel, and a Randolph, Silberman, um, you know, I don't know, Katzis panel or Henderson panel. So you're right. Maybe they'll say something that provokes provokes it, but I doubt it. I think that one or the other, within six months, he's released back to his original drop-off With point. no ruling on the merits of his detention. Never ruling on the merits of his detention. Now, presumably, if, if you and I are right, he'll have a passport. Or something, and and then it gets really interesting. Okay, so or what a if, global entry card? What if he takes his four thousand bucks and his passport and does manage to get back to the United States, and he lands? Yeah. Uh, it'll be really interesting to, to see, see what, what happens next. Now, I think he actually won't come to the United States. I think he'd come to Saudi Arabia, where he actually, you know, actually has some ties. Um, but if he comes here, I think then we might finally see that arrest on material support charges that we've been wondering where is it. Yeah, although why not just do that now? Why not? Why not have? I know. No, you, you and I have both argued. Like, why not just, just arrest I mean, him now? There's the, my, there's no legal obstacle to DOD transferring him to DOJ custody. Right, twenty three thirty nine B applies extraterritorially. Like, there's no legal yeah. bar. No, I, I like. I think that they, that that would seem to have been the thing. And and I've argued that it, it it shows you therefore that what the the game really is is they really don't want this guy to come back to the United right. States and they'll deal with it if and when he comes back here. But they're hoping he'll not come back here. All right, uh, really quickly, other sustaining member, Al Nashiri, um, has filed a new motion to dismiss. Now, now, keep in mind, his case is pending in the CMCR right now on this whole abatement question. 
add to that Judge Bass retirement. But he's now asked the CMCR, Bobby, to jump over all of the ethical stuff and just dismiss the whole case on the ground that the convening authority is, under the Supreme Court's recent Lucia decision, an officer of the United States, but that his appointment did not comport with the Appointments Clause. And so he's actually acting um, unlawfully um, and ultra-virus. Um, this is not a frivolous argument. I mean, Lucia really does, whether it's right or wrong, turn on its head a whole lot of prior practice about officers versus employees and what kind of authority they could exercise. So this is another thing. What, so, can you? Is it too soon to to give an estimate of the likelihood of success of that kind well, of challenge? Well, it's the CMCR. He's going to lose, um, <laughs> right? I right. mean, I mean, that's, but ultimately, <laughs> in t we're talking two thousand thirty-six. So, listen, if this goes to the DC Circuit, the problem in the DC Circuit is if it goes on mandamus, you have the high standard, and it's a question of right. first impression, and blah blah blah, right? right. Um, it's not if whoever actually decides this de novo and cares about it, Lucia really does formalize. Um, distinctions that often used to be sort of soft-pedaled, right? The, you know, Lucia draws a very bright line between the responsibilities of officers of the United States and employees of the United States that we used to sort of fudge a little bit. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of context, not just yeah. the military commission. I was going to say, are there other contexts, yes. maybe not related to our domain, where this is going to really So real, an, another things? good example is there's, you know, there's this huge debt restructuring litigation in Puerto Rico that is like a ginormous thing. Um, and there was a big question about whether the oversight board Congress created to oversee the debt restructuring yeah. um, violates the appointments clause. So Judge Swain actually ruled last week that the answer was no, because even though the board exercises pretty significant authority, it's exercising that authority on behalf of Puerto Rico, not the United States, and so it's not bound by the appointments clause. You know, several years ago in Com Law for 1Ls, uh, in order to make space for other stuff, I decided, you know, we just won't do appointments and uh, removals. Oh, man, I think that might be the whole, the whole course so going forward. I, I used to, you know, I don't want to tell this to my associate dean, but I, I used to at American teach an upper-level elective called Separation of Powers Law, where we actually spent a couple of weeks on all of the appointments and removal right. stuff. And it was yeah. really fascinating. Interesting. And it's become, eh? a, it's become a rich... Tell a rich, me more, Steve. Uh, uh, what else are you teaching? Uh, hey, real quick, let's digress because we've been talking about serious stuff for, for so long. What are you teaching next year? Nothing. Oh, wait. Uh, so I have a course release in the fall, um, and her name is Sydney. Yes, indeed. Uh, and then in the spring, I'm teaching You're federal te courts. You've got diaper law in the fall. Diaper law in the fall and federal courts. And then uh, you and I are both teaching variants on national security in the spring. Yeah, what's yours? So mine's going to be very sort of detention, treatment, and trial oriented. Like you've got someone in custody now what? Now what? And then mine will be uh, the law of the intelligence community. So you want to listen to somebody. Now what? <laughs> right. So you want to figure out whether you can detain someone. <laughs> you want to have a deniable operation. But and, and, and just to be clear, I mean, we've done this intentionally because our hope, and, and indeed, I, I assume that the associate dean will not schedule these at the same time so that if there are students <laughs> who actually really Certainly want not. to immerse themselves in national security law, you know, we're lucky here at UT. I mean, we and maybe one other law school, Georgetown, have the resources to offer this depth of curriculum in national security we've courses? Got, we've got a lot of stuff. We, you know, we've just mentioned a couple of things, yep. and we rotate our offerings. Uh, in the fall, there's also my cybersecurity course. Indeed. That's going to be in its, its second year. Yep. That's going to be a lot of fun this coming year. Derek's teaching, right? Law Derek Jinx. Yep. Yeah. So, lots of, so all that's to say, hey, law students. Or, or enterprise, aspiring law Of course, students. the coolest thing you can do here is come here and take Matt Tate's class and learn totally actually some true. technical concepts That's relating to cybersecurity. Matt, Matt is putting us all to shame. I think, I think it's actually the, by the best kept secret about the University of Texas is that 
Matt Tate teaches here, and if you're a grad student in any program here, you can come take a fall or a spring class with him. I, I tweeted about that the other day, and there were a lot of reactions along the lines of, wait, what? Yeah, no, no, Matt's, yeah. Matt's, Matt's problem Tate. is, like, if you said Professor Ponal the Things is here. Then people would th- understand. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, really quick lightning round on the remaining stuff we want to talk about. So um, to no one's surprise, I think, right, the D.C. Circuit dismissed the appeal um, it will dismiss the whole case in Smith versus Trump. Yep. This was the service member trying to challenge his deployment to Syria. Bobby, we had talked a couple of weeks ago about how the D.C. Circuit had, um, after sitting on the case for eight or nine months, ordered supplemental briefing <laughs> on, hey, we see that you're about to be discharged yeah, from the military. Have we waited long enough yet? <laughs> and, and basically the day after. They had waited long enough. They're like, oh, this case is now moot. Thanks for playing. Shucks. Now, I want to say, I, I think this is actually a perfectly good outcome because it wipes off the books what I thought was a problematic um, district court ruling, throwing the case out on political question grounds. The standing holding by the district court I thought was more defensible, but now it's just it's all, just it's all, all gone away. Wiped away. All right. Um, and, and, and by the else? way, m- once again, leaves Doe versus Mattis as the only pending litigation, raising the AUMF ISIS question, and you and I are increasingly of the view that that's not going to be resolved there either. That's right. Okay. Um, and then we've got uh, the, the, the constitutional rights case. Right, uh, so that was heard, I think, Wednesday before Judge Hogan. Got a lot of headlines, Bobby, for the whole sort of concerns about forever war and are really going to hold these guys indefinitely. You know, given the D.C. Circuit's jurisprudence, I'm not— you know, Judge Hogan can say a lot of things, but I'm not sure he has a lot of room to actually rule in a way that's necessarily going to vindicate those concerns. I think it is, uh, as long as it is the case, it is really well settled at this point that the law of armed conflict model of detaining combatants for the duration of hostilities, that is an open-ended period of time. By definition, you do not know how long the hostilities last. If and when you can come into court and make a credible showing that the hostilities have ended, which they've attempted here vis-a-vis Afghanistan, I don't think they've got the case. I don't think the facts support them on that, but they're making that attempt. But to argue just in general that the principle is is not okay, I think that ship sailed a long time ago. Um, so I think they're they're pretty likely to lose on that one. But there is an interesting question that I think, you know, comes out of the hearing, which is, um, we've talked about the periodic review board process before. This is the whole idea that there are these administrative hearings at Guantanamo that don't consider whether the person is detainable. They actually ask a higher bar question, which is whether there's still reason to believe that they would that they, they they would pose a threat, right, to the yeah. national security of the United States if released. Is, she, would you, is it higher or just different? Just different. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Yeah. I, this, you're right. The Venn diagram could be exclusive, yeah. right? So, but different, right? Well, yeah. What you might think of as more of a Geneva 4 question about dangerousness versus Geneva 3, which is Although membership. It's, it's modulated in the following way. So the, the inquiry is, okay, assume for the sake of argument, yes, you can detain them, but should you? Right. And the should you question encompasses the possibility that, look, they're no longer as dangerous as they once were, or maybe they never were, but... But Anyways, we still have the legal but we, can, but we can live with it now as a policy matter. Right. Or, and this is an important wrinkle, or we still think they're dangerous, but we believe that receiving state X, can the Saudis or whoever, can handle it. they've made the right kind of assurances to where they can right. deal with it. So the Obama administration put this process into effect, I think, in 2013. Although we'll be, we got to be really clear okay. that well, they, there were the ARBs before the, them. The, the, the acronym has changed, but there has been. And Some the, kind of. Right. And the Bush administration released loads of people from Gitmo under this policy, which goes to show you this isn't some it's political partisan. thing. It's not some Obama wants to close Guantanamo but you have, okay, thing. But the current iteration comes from Executive Order 13567, yeah, which, which Obama, I think, was 2013. Anyway, and you and I both noted with some 
uh, pleasant surprise that when Trump finally issued his Guantanamo executive order, it left the PRBs untouched. Yeah, absolutely. And the PRBs have very quietly been going about their business in terms of meeting and, and right. hearing And my understanding claims. is that of the 40 detainees still at Guantanamo, five of them at, at least have been cleared by the PRBs um, and had been know. cleared before. That, so yeah. on the day Trump came to office, the number was five. Yeah. That may be higher. I mean, there may have been clearances that we haven't heard about there since There may then. have been. I suspect it's probably still right where it was. And just for, for the non-legal listeners, if you have a mental image of sort of a parole board that you've got some person who's been convicted, they're going to stay in jail unless the parole board is persuaded that, you know, you can get parole. Let's let this person out now under the following conditions. I think it's fair to say, Steve, that's roughly the the idea here for mm-hmm. the layperson, right? Mm-hmm. I think so, that's right. So it's a, it is a bit of a surprise because uh, Trump, could have, and some of us thought he would have, Shut it down. just gotten, gotten rid of, or at least tightened up the process in certain ways. But, but here's as far the as pro- we know, he hasn't. Well, but here's the problem. So the PRBs are going, right? Let's imagine that the, you, you have, five, to my understanding, five who are already cleared. Let's imagine they clear another couple of people, right, in the next year or two. The problem is, is that it doesn't look like there's been any effort on the part of this administration to do anything with the cleared detainees. Whereas we know that the Bush and Trump administrations tried their best, not always successfully. Bush and Obama. Sorry, Bush and Obama administrations. Woo, Freudian slip. Um, tried their best, not always successfully, right, to find remedies, to find yeah. dispositions for the clear detainees. Are, with the significant exception, I'm not sure if it's an exception or just a caveat, um, for people who would be repatriated to Yemen, yeah. right? So because of the right. instability that was in the, Yemen, that was the hardest everyone from Yemen could not. That was an Obama rule. If you were from Yemen and you were cleared for release notionally, you nonetheless weren't going to go anywhere. To Yemen. Now, to Yemen. Now, now, now are they any, make alternative are, arrangements. Right, which increasingly gets hard over time. Are any of the five that we know about currently are subject to the to the Yemen bar? They might be. I, I have to go back and look at the data. Yeah. But but here's the question. The question is, if you are if you are a concerned person trying to figure out, well, what can we do, right? Um, you're not going to get the D.C. Circuit to say, oh, yeah, no more detention authority. I mean, I think that— No, no, that's clearly not but, happening. But here's an interesting question I want to throw out there. What would you think about codifying the executive order on PRBs, about actually um, formalizing them in statute and ensuring that no president, Trump right. or successors, can make the process go away? And, Bobby, perhaps going even one step further, which is creating a presumption, maybe not a right, but a presumption that a clear detainee will, in fact, be transferred out of Gitmo within X, X number of time. Well, X so the whole thing would, of course, have to be hedged about as the existing PRB, even under Obama, yeah. uh, in, under Bush. Without, uh, without forswearing detention authority. Well, not just that, but where I'm going is with uh, ample, and I mean really ample room for executive branch discretion in figuring out when, where, and how to make this decision. Under Obama himself, it wasn't that the PRB got the last word. The Secretary of Defense, and ultimately in theory the president, could decide, well, the, the panel that gathered thought this is okay, but for whatever reason, I'm concluding otherwise. Maybe there's late-breaking information, there's further information, mm-hmm. or I simply look at the fact different, the facts differently. Uh, you'd have to preserve that, which I think means that you wouldn't actually be able to do too much to force the executive branch's hand to release someone that President Trump or Secretary Mattis did not want to release. But I think it would be different in kind if it was a statutory framework. First of all, it would eliminate the the, I think, very problematic possibility that someone decides, hey, we're not even going to convene these. Yep. That's bad. Let's lock that in. I think yep. it's really important to have this periodic review. Yep. Um, and I think by uh, adding some elements of transparency and reporting and data gathering, um, you could make it a more effective system. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so I guess what I'm saying is, hey, members of Congress, right, if you're actually interested in this, you don't have to change, you know, you don't have to sort of completely reform right. Guantanamo right. just to make moderate progress just by looking at the PRBs. I agree. That would be, that'd be interesting. I All think right. there's a version of that I could get behind. Hey, there you go. There you go. Agreement. All right. Quick frivolity. Um, 
Our frivolity is actually still substantive, so I'm not sure it counts as frivolity. But it's not very frivolous. It's an extra. We both extra to, extra. We both want to plug plug different things. So I want to plug the 2018-19 edition of the supplement to Dicus et al. National Security Law, sixth edition, 2015. Right now, who all is still on the uh, uh, on the? So there are four of us. Um, Steve Dicus from Vermont Law School, Bill Banks from Syracuse, uh, Peter Raven Hansen, who's now emeritus at George Washington, and your friendly, pod- friendly neighborhood pod- podcast <laughs> podcaster. Co-host. Well, congratulations on, I know, a huge amount of work went into that. Oi. Uh, and let me tell you, I, I take great joy in not, not having done any work of it. and, yeah. uh, and uh, maybe getting the benefit of but it on the back end. I, I just want to say, though, I mean, so so I, I, there are there are six or seven, I think, case books now in the field of national security law. I'm obviously biased in thinking that ours is the best. I think the one thing that we unquestionably have going for us is we really try very hard to be the most current um, and to provide folks who want to teach in this field or just even want it as a reference with the most up-to-date coverage. In addition to our annual supplements, we do periodic website updates for the, you know, too important to wait till next year development. So, so at what point does it all just become digital, right? We're getting there. I mean, I think the problem is, is that, you know, I mean, look at our students, right? There's still demand for the tactile paper, you know, sense do you, of... Do you think that the typical law student... Uh, the, the median law student yeah. out there um, is actually put off, maybe not even aware that they are, but kind of put off when they're given a set of sort of loose leaf or, you know, photocopied materials that the professor says, hey, these are my materials, that they need at a psychological level to really trust that they're getting the canon, if you will. They need that that uh, book binding on it. I think it's generational. I mean, I think, you know, listen, you and I came, came through college and law school in an age where all of our materials were hard copies, yeah. right? You know, I think we're getting to a point where we're going to have students students, you know, one L's um, who haven't seen, you know, who haven't actually had to take a look at a physical book in a while. Yeah. And so I think, I think it's, it's all generational. You know, there are things I don't like about digital casebooks. I mean, we're in the middle of this long conversation with our publisher oh, about sure. moving to some kind Lots of digital of platform. Um, but, you know, I, I think there is this hard question. Listen, there, there it's a two-level question. One is, what's the platform, right? Digital, yeah. hard copy, something in between. The other is, what's our job, right? I mean, like, you know, is our book supposed to be comprehensive? Is it supposed to be pedagogically coherent? I mean, there's, you know, national security law is no longer small enough for a one semester right. course. Right. And so as, you know, as we who think we have the leading casebook in the field, yeah. is it our job to design a book that is conducive to a one-semester course? Or is it our job to design a book that is comprehensive, that allows professors to design their own course out of the constituent parts? I can imagine a just-in-time publishing model. I think we've talked about this before, the utility of having something where you guys have all these modules and a professor can go to your site, go to, is it Aspen you guys are with? Go to Aspen and say, hey, I I want uh, one, four, seven, 13, and 19. So we're working on that. We're working on, we're working on, um, there's a fancy name for it, I don't remember, but we are working on like chopped up case books. Can, can, can they also select in different ways? Like, I, I want the parts that that, uh, that Banks and Dykus did. But <laughs> no leave out that chapters. Vlad, leave out that Vladic guy. No Vladic chapters. <laughs> that, that, then there'd be no Guantanamo in the book. Um, so anyway, so that's, so all this to say, for folks who are teaching in the field, for folks who are interested and curious, you know, keep your eyes out for the supplement. I posted the front matter on Twitter so you can actually see what is in the supplement without actually having to buy it. But And, and for heaven's sakes, tell your students to listen to the podcast. Yes. If you, really want, be, if you really want, if you really want, if you really want updated, you know, next spring we'll do that, right? We'll both be teaching this class, and we'll both say, "Hey, you're taking our, you must listen to the podcast." We, you know, we should drop a little Easter eggs and little references, and then then the we walk in the class, say, "Quiz today, what was Bobby question twenty two favorite see. movie?" Yes, <laughs> coming to America, we all know that. <laughs> um, well, let me do a quick uh, extra of my own. 
Uh, if you're in D.C. and you're around on Thursday at lunchtime, come on over to the Heritage Foundation where Klon Kitchen, Klon is Ooh. the uh, Senior Research Fellow for Technology at Heritage, uh, is hosting a, uh, an event I'm real excited about. This event uh, has to do with a paper that I've co-authored, a new paper with uh, Danielle Citroen, who's at Maryland, who's amazing and awesome. If you don't know her work, then you are truly missing out. Uh, Danielle is is uh, one of the, the nation's leading experts on privacy, especially as it relates to technology, and including, but certainly not limited to, uh, gendered impacts of technology on privacy. Um, and she and I joined forces a little while back to write a, a short post at Lawfare on the phenomenon of deep fakes. Deep fakes is a term that, of all things, comes out of the pornography industry. This is using kind of di- like deep throat. Yeah, well, it's it, it, there's a connotation there, right? And uh, it's using digital manipulation to create very hard to debunk. Uh, falsified audio or video that shows people, real people doing or saying things they never said or did. So you can figure out how how that began in that particular industry. But I'm sure you can also see all the ways in which that same capacity can be and is being used in other ways. Uh, None of this is totally novel. What's novel is that uh, new uh, machine learning techniques, especially generative adversarial learning techniques that pit one uh, algorithm against another and constantly trying to improve and then detect and then improve the fake, are making really hard to detect and very realistic looking fakes. Uh, And the capacity to do these things will pretty quickly begin to diffuse. Danielle and I argue that there will be an unbelievable raft of individual and societal harms. Uh, At the individual level, you'll have sabotage and exploitation. At At the societal level, you'll have threats to democracy, to elections, to national security, to, you know, you name it. Um, So our paper, which has just been posted to SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, if you want to find it, uh, it's still under review there, but I believe you'll get it if you do a search on Google for Chesney SSRN deep fakes, and you'll get to the paper. Uh, The event at Heritage on Thursday is going to feature Senator Marco Rubio talking about the deep fake challenge. He is uh, immediately sees the the importance of the issue and wants to talk about the need to pay attention to it on, on an array of dimensions. And then after the senator speaks, there will be a panel with myself, Danielle, and uh, from from Google, we will have with us uh, Chris Bregler, senior staff scientist at Google AI, and we're going to talk for a while. I, I do think it's been booking up fast. So this is at 1230 Eastern Time at Heritage on, at 214 Mass Ave. Go to their Northeast. West, northeast. Don't go to the wrong end. Um, <laughs> Go on their website to register for it, and if you uh, if it's all booked up, there's going to be a live stream, and go find the paper and uh, give us feedback because it's you know it's just a draft. We'll be submitting the law reviews. Uh, actually, Steve, we we saw online that Northwestern uh, Law Review has an exclusive submission window, so we sent it to them. So right now, hey, North- Northwestern or bust. Um, but after the 31st, uh, if they don't take it, we'll be uh, looking to see who who will. That's, that's, this is a great project. I'm really glad that it's getting attention from Senator Rubio. I will I will save the rest of my feelings about Senator Rubio for another time. Fair enough. Um, but I will tell my favorite my favorite DC tourism joke. Right. I, I mean, we both have lived in DC. Um, so we used to live. We lived in in Shawn. Before that, we lived in in sort of the edge of Chinatown. And it would ha- I went to your, I went to your apartment there once. That's a great place. Um, and all the time, people would stop you and be like. Um, is Eastern Market right here? And you're like, this is 7th and E Northwest. <laughs> you want 7th and E Southeast. 
those are different. Very, very different locations. That is not Eastern Market. The, 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 uh, you know, I guess maybe, I mean, the New Yorker in me is like, you know, naturally inclined to think of cities as grids. Yeah, right. right. I mean, you got to be sympathetic as a New Yorker. No, it, this no. is a grid. It's just yeah, a yeah. grid with quadrants. Like, well, but yeah, but the quadrants, you know, that's tough for people who don't come from the grid. Versus, world. okay, if I, you don't, <laughs> West 14th Street versus East 14th Street. How about the the famous Seinfeld episode where Kramer Indeed. goes downtown and ends up? <laughs> he calls Jerry. He's all lost. He's like, I'm, and Jerry says, "Where are you? Look at, look up. What, what's your cross streets?" And he's like, "I'm on first. What cross street?" First, yes. I'm, I'm at first and first. I'm at the nexus of the universe, Jerry. And so when I was a little kid, first, so first and first is actually like two blocks away from Russ and Daughters. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in that in that area when I was a, a wee a wee little New Yorker. That's pretty but funny. The you know the Commissioner's Plan of 1811 is responsible for the entire footprint of New York north of Houston. Oh my God! All right, that sounds like a book unto itself. I'm sure that it book's is. Been written. Oh my gosh! That that it is a it is a like you know the whole sort of architecture and 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 topography and geography of of street and then map design that's pretty great I, i'm sorry i'm an obsessive new york I, I think we if we haven't burned out our last i'm gonna say at this point <laughs> i'm at first and first no i'm out all right we're coming to you live from helsinki sweden sweden thank you die hard <laughs> and thanks for reminding me of that reference uh die hard last question christmas movie or not christmas movie it is the all-time quintessential Christmas movie. And the best part is it even makes a joke about whether it's a Christmas movie, right? In the beginning, there's a whole thing about whether a song that McLean is listening to yeah. in the limo on the way to the is party a is song? a Christmas song. Yeah, wh- it's meta. Wait, but what song was that? It was a rap song. Was it Christmas in Hollis? Uh, it might have been. Um, I feel like with the title, it's... But, you know, but this is like, it's all meta, right? It's yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. The, in the second scene of the movie, they're like, wait, you know, what makes this a Christmas song? Well, what makes this a Christmas movie? It, uh, when I think of Christmas movies, I think of Home Alone and I think of Die Hard. Those, those are the two. I love it. All right, well, that's if you're going to have only two, at least at my house, that'll be fun watching. yippee ki mother. Oh, that was going to be my closing line. <laughs> <laughs> How about, right. how about, how about, um, wait, what was the other, uh, Sega, no, um, there's another great line, there's another great, like, you that's know. We're going to need some more FBI guys. We're going to need some more FBI guys. Uh, well, that's the, the principal from Breakfast Club. What's Indeed. that guy's name? Paul, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. All right, that's enough. Agent Johnson? No, I'm Agent Johnson. <laughs> wait, we're both John, Agent Johnson. Just like Vietnam, huh? <laughs> All right, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. If you are still listening, you are awesome, and you should line up some more <laughs> listeners. Yes. Um, we are at NSL Podcast. Stay safe out there. Adios.